0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: And my father felt like it was frivolous. He said to me, he said, you know, your problem is that you never pick cotton. He said, when you pick cotton, you don't say, I don't feel challenged by this cotton. You don't say this cotton is not my niche. I fear it does not recognize my complexity. He said, you just picked the damn cotton. And I was so frustrated that he didn't understand that the fact that I wanted to have my complexity recognized, that I wanted to find my niche, it wasn't rejection of his sacrifice. It was the fruit of his sacrifice. I was in a mall and I saw a couple and they were in love and in trouble. The woman was fantastically dressed, bags, shoes, nails, everything. And the guy, he looked he looked fine, but she looked fantastic. This is why I noticed them. And I heard her say, Claire Isabel, a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I looked at him, I looked at her, they looked at me and I felt like all three of us were in agreement that he would not have waited on her for no seven years. But then he turned to her and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place.
2: Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice Live. I'm Samira Ahmed and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did writers, politicians, performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is one of America's finest novelists, I have to say... And I've interviewed a lot of great writers. You're one of the most fascinating people to talk to. So we're all in for a real treat. She's also a professor at large at Cornell University, Tayari Jones. Born and raised in Atlanta in Georgia, she achieved global fame when her novel An American Marriage won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2019. The multi-award winning book, a powerful tale about the impact on a young African-American couple when the innocent husband is jailed for the rape of a woman. It resonated powerfully long before the renewal of the Black Lives Matter protests sparked by the police killing of George Floyd. President Obama, Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey had all picked it as one of their reads of the year and Oprah has bought the film rights. But Tiari was already fully formed as a writer. It was her fourth novel and with each she's shown her ability to tap into the cultural experiences of African American middle class life especially and most fascinatingly of girlhood and womanhood drawing in some cases on her own memories of growing up in Atlanta in the 1970s and 80s. In books such as Leaving Atlanta she's tackled the impact on school children of the Atlanta child murders that haunted her own childhood in the late 1970s and she's explored the complexities of modern relationships in Silver Sparrow, which is just coming out now in the UK, about two daughters of a father and the father lives between two separate families. We'll be talking about both of those too. Teari, welcome. It's a thrill to have you. Thank you for having me. Teari, I'd like to take you back to your childhood. What was it like growing up in Cascade Heights in Atlanta in the 70s?
1: I grew up in Cascade Heights and I did not know this, but Just a few years before I was born, there was a literal wall erected to keep black families from moving into the neighborhood. It was known as the Peyton Wall. And the wall was built to narrow the street so that no one could move in a moving van. But I had no idea of this history, even though my parents are educators, they, I guess they didn't want us, we knew about racism and the history of civil rights, but I don't think anyone wanted us to know how close it had come to us. So I grew up none the wiser in a black middle class community, because once the black families moved in, the other families moved out. So we lived there as though we had always lived there. My parents, you know, met in graduate school and they both had PhDs, but I didn't consider this to be terribly unusual.
2: So you really had this sense of just it was completely normal, all these middle class educated people. In a sense, racism wasn't something that you experienced day to day then?
1: Now, I knew that racism was out there and I knew kind of intellectually that America was considered to be a, maj- a white country, a majority white country. But I felt about that the way that you would feel about when you hear that the earth is 80 percent water, you believe it. But if the earth is 80 percent water, how are we standing here? You don't quite believe it until you've seen a photo from space.
2: Now, you mentioned that your parents had PhDs, they met in graduate school, and they'd been active in civil rights. And I think you've said that you felt you were born into a new age. Did it feel like an exciting, optimistic time that you could do anything in?
1: Well, I will say I didn't know it was an exciting, optimistic time because you only know the time you know. So I did not know the progress that had been made. Yes, I knew that my father had grown up during Jim Crow. He told me a few stories that broke my heart. One I remember most is that I was asking um, if I should order something out of a catalog. And my father said, no, you really shouldn't order it. And he told me when he was a boy, because they were black, they couldn't return things. And he had ordered a turtleneck sweater because he was thrilled with the idea that a a sweater could cover your neck. He thought, what an innovation. So he saved his money, pennies at a time. And when he would save, his mother would need the money for something and he would have to give the money away. He finally ordered it, but it was wool. And he didn't know he had a wool allergy and his neck itched so much and he couldn't return it because he was black. And so he had to take scissors and cut it and wear it ragged because it was the only sweater or jumper, I guess you would say, that he had. And that is what I understood of racism. And I understood it to be so far away that it was when my father was a child. So I didn't know that this was the brave new world, but I understand now that all the adults around us when we were growing up were constantly beaming at us because we were the future. But we didn't know we were the future. We just thought we were ourselves.
2: But also I should say, you know, you were a very bright child. You were always a few years ahead of your age at school. You were put up classes. How was that?
1: Was it fun? Well, I think I felt more different because of my parents being such activists. We couldn't do any of the things that other children did. Like. For example, we didn't well, we didn't drink Coca-Cola because we were boycotting Coke because of apartheid. Everyone else was drinking Coke. Here we are with a principled stand against Coke, which is manufactured here in Atlanta. Yeah.) Um, all kinds of things like um, we were. My mother didn't want me to straighten my hair. All the other girls straightened their hair. So I felt I had this unpronounceable name. So I just had a lot of things. We didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. We had a note from home, and we would say, "Oh, we don't. We have a note from home to say that we're against imperialism, and so we don't. We don't say the pledge." And we would go out in the hallway while all the other children are saying the pledge. Those were the things that I was always aware that I had a worldview that I was taught at home a worldview that was different than everyone else's and I at once was proud of my parents but also I just longed to belong.
2: Did it ever cause you difficulty because I think there was an issue with going to a friend's house and did they have one of these brands (laughs) that you were
1: shocked by? I was little then I was about six and this little girl invited me to the zoo and I adored this little girl she I just loved everything about her And I had on my little zoo outfit. To this day, when I get dressed up, I say, I've got on my zoo clothes, I had on my zoo clothes. And the mother picked us up and she stopped at a gas station and started filling the car. And the gas station was one of the companies who support apartheid. So I said, excuse me, ma'am, we don't use this gas because they support apartheid and they kill children in Soweto. And the mother said, well, you know, this gas is 25 cents a gallon and we're going to fill up. And I was like, no, ma'am, they, they, they kill children in Soweto. And the woman ignored me because, you know, she's an adult and she's not accustomed to listening to children. And I thought as I was watching the numbers tick off on the gas pump, I felt like that those numbers were somehow adding up in South Africa and children were being killed. And I had to get out of the car. I couldn't stay in the car. So I got out of the car and I sat down on the on the um, concrete and I said, I can't go. And oh. my father had to come pick me up. And that little girl never talked to me again. And I got my zoo clothes dirty sitting down. I still remember it. I mean, listening to that, and I'm sure
2: everyone else listens to that just, my heart goes out to this amazing principal's child. Wow, what a story. Your first novel, Leaving Atlanta, was published in 2003. and I read it quite recently. I just thought it was amazing. It's set among school children living in Atlanta through the terror of this real spate of child killings that were targeting black children between 1979 and 81. There's even, I think, there's a Tayari Jones among the classmates in the book, isn't (laughs) there? And clearly, your memory of that time was very powerful. Did You knew children who disappeared. How do you look back at that time?
1: Yes, two children who were students at my school disappeared. And they were two boys and they were very different. One boy was called Yusuf and he was very shy and quiet. He was in the gifted children's class with me and he disappeared and I felt very personally anxious because he was a boy so much like myself. But then there was another boy by the name of Terry, and he was well, I thought he was so much older than us. Um and he rode a little motorcycle, a little moped. But I thought it was a motorcycle and he was so much bigger, older and more ferocious. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if he could be killed, us regular kids don't stand a chance. But when I was doing my research for the book, I pulled his picture up. I think he was only 12 years old. But I was nine years old, so I thought he was so much older. He was just a little boy riding a moped.
2: Wow. One of the things that's powerful about the book is the way you really convey the anxiety for the children, but also how it was treated. I mean, I have to confess, having grown up in in the UK, I'd never heard of this. In a sense, it's still unsolved, because although a person was convicted, there's a lot of people who believe he wasn't the one. I wonder what prompted you to write that book, and in a sense, what you were exploring by taking on this terrible real-life story.
1: Well, for one thing, most people's first novel, it's not at all uncommon to write a coming-of-age story as your first novel. So in that, I'm like every other young writer. I was in my 20s when I wrote that. And for me, coming-of-age involved these child murders. I couldn't take them apart. For me, um, you know, I remember when I got fitted for my training bra, which was a size 28 AAA, which is almost no bra at all. (laughs) I remember the woman at the store, she measured me, and she said, 28 inches around, and she said triple a and she kind of smirked at my mother and they and and I remember I was so mad I felt like me and my little budding bosom were not being taken seriously and I kind of turned in a huff and over there in the distance there was a television cuz it was a big department store and on the television were the faces of the missing children and I saw someone I recognized oh my so God. but so I'll, I I so my coming of age and that image are together um but I decided to write about it with the more urgency when I was about 19, 18 or nineteen years old, I babysat a little boy and he was late for um for his tutoring. And I was so panicked and I asked everyone to help me. I was in tears. And most people said, oh he's just a few minutes late. He'll show up. But other this is when I was in university and other people dropped everything to help me. And I realized that everyone who had dropped everything had also grown up in Atlanta. That we had this shared trauma of What it means when a child is missing and i realized that the country had put this story to bed that no everyone had forgotten what happened to us and i was interested in what it was like for us not what it meant for the nation what it meant for our parents what it meant for the generation to whom it happened
2: did you always want to be a writer
1: oh i well yes and no i always loved to write I was just a writing little child. I had my little notebooks. I would make little books and I would staple them, but I didn't know that I could be an author because I didn't know that was available to me as a girl. I knew that black people wrote books, but I didn't know that as a woman, I was a girl at the time, that I could write and no one bothered to mention it to me. I think that when girls like to read and write, people think it just means you're a nice girl. They don't think you're a little intellectual.
2: Who were you reading as a, as a child?
1: I read constantly, there was this thing called the Georgia Booklist and in the summertime you could read the books on the Georgia Booklist and win prizes. And I was determined to win the prize every year. Did you? I won several times, there were so many books on the list, there were like 30, but I'll tell you a cute little story. So then when we got back to school, Every class would do a project to celebrate the Georgia book list. And my class made a quilt. Every child was given a square. So, you know, I was sewing. And at the end of the year, when every, all the children had gone, it was summer. I asked the teacher, could I have the quilt? Because I loved it so much. And she said, no, the quilt was only for, it was not for one child. It was for the whole class. So she couldn't give it to me. But if I wanted to come back to her room and visit it, I could. And I was so ashamed, I felt like I had overstepped, that I was being greedy and, and I was so embarrassed and I never came back. Flash forward about five years ago, I was at work and I received a package. I opened the package and I saw just the corner and I said, it's the Georgia book quilt. I would have recognized it anywhere. And the lady wrote a letter, she said she was retiring and when she retired, she kept it because she remembered the little girl who wanted it and she regretted not giving it to her. And then she saw my picture. I looked just like I did when I was a child. She saw my picture in a magazine and she said, that's the child that wanted the quilt. And she mailed it to me. Oh my God,
2: you have, to, you have to post a picture on your website or something. We have to see this quilt, that's a gorgeous story. I gather that your father wasn't keen on your plan to study creative writing at
1: university. Is that right? Both my parents thought it was kind of ridiculous. Um, My mother said, getting a degree in creative writing is like getting a degree in basketball. She said, if you are a good basketball player, no one is going to inquire as to whether or not you have the credential. And my father felt like, it was frivolous and that I should get a PhD in literature because I had already dropped out of a PhD program in literature. And he felt like I was throwing his sacrifice back in his face. Like they had gone through so much so that education would be accessible to me. And I'm kind of making a mockery of it. But he said to me, he said, you know, your problem is that you never pick cotton. He said, when you pick cotton, you don't, say, I don't feel challenged by this cotton. You don't say this cotton is not my niche. I fear it does not recognize my complexity. He said, you just picked the damn cotton. And I was so frustrated that he didn't understand that the fact that I wanted to have my complexity recognized, that I wanted to find my niche, it wasn't rejection of his sacrifice. It was the fruit of his sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I finally, finally, told him we were sitting at the table having some tea, I was, he was having coffee, I was having tea, and I begged him just to hear me, and he finally said, okay, you know, I'll drive you out there to start the program. Now, what I've learned recently is that when Daddy was a boy, he wanted to be a writer. I had no idea. He mm-hmm. wanted to write novels, but it just wasn't available to him.
2: And you only found that out recently.
1: Yeah, about, I mean, since this pandemic, because of the pandemic, I go visit my parents. We sit on their front porch. We can't watch television. There's no television on the porch. And so we talk about things. And he said, when he was going through some of his things, he found poems he had written as a little boy, letters he had written to the newspaper. So in many ways, I was, I am living his dream. You're living his unlived life. They, I, I was li- I'm living the dream he forgot that he had. How did your writing career
2: get going? Because, you know, you obviously went to university, you, you know, you, you went to graduate school, uh, Spelman College, Liberal Arts College in Atlanta, but also University in Arizona and I think Iowa. So at what point did the writing really become the thing that you felt you could you could potentially make a living at?
1: Well, when I was well, I've only recently started making a living at it. So um, I've always had another job which I think is really important. I think having a day job gives you so much freedom as a writer because because the writing is not paying the bills, you don't have pressure on it in the same way. Um, I want to be paid for my writing, obviously, but I don't wanna to have to write for money. So
2: you, you've been teaching for many years as well, creative writing.
1: And I'm to keep teaching. People say, I can't believe you still have your teaching job, but it gives me flexibility. So if I miss a deadline, I don't miss a meal so that I don't have to force the writing because I need to eat. Because I eat several times a day. I- I've eaten twice today already. But when I was... <laughs> I'm so silly, I know. But when I was... When I wanted to... When I finished my... um undergraduate. I had applied for an award that had been sponsored by Alice Walker because she also attended Spelman College, which is a historically black liberal arts college for women, very specific. And I wanted the award. And I i mean, I did everything to win the prize. I even saved my money and bought something called a word processor. No one had ever heard of it, but I was going to process these words and I was going to win this prize. And I was told that the prize was not, would not be given to anyone that year. And I was so disappointed that no one was good enough. If someone else had won, I would think maybe she had been better than me, but no one. So I went to Iowa to do a PhD in literature, not to go to creative writing, which is what it's famous for. I didn't even know they had, I didn't even know. So when I got to Iowa and all these people were saying, we're the writers, I would say, oh, I'm a writer too. And they would be like, no, not you. Not like that. So I was unhappy because I wanted to create literature, but I was studying literature. So it was as though I was a bird who was being trained to be an ornithologist. And I dropped out of that program. I just was so unhappy. And I started teaching um, adult literacy. And that was a good experience to me because it just felt so much more hands-on. And I was working, I wrote a novel. I bought a laptop. Technology was moving on. I bought a laptop. Um, It costs $1,000 which was so much money. I had to put it, pay for it on time, you know, a little bit every month. And I wrote a book. It was a terrible book. It was a dog of a novel. It is the worst novel anyone has ever written. But it was finished. And I knew it wasn't good. But I said to myself, I said, self, if you can write this book, you can write another one and it'll be better. And if it's not good enough, you can write another one. It'll be better. Because you've proven to yourself that you can write a book. You just got, now you have to learn how to write a good book. So, out of the dog, I published 10 pages in a literal magazine with a circulation of like nine. And I believe that when you dedicate yourself to art and what you, and your passion, the doors will open. Because I was on an elevator and I ran into a literally ran into a woman who ran um, a creative writing program and she had seen my little story and she offered me a scholarship. I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna try and write this book. I'm almost 30. And if I haven't finished a good book by the time I'm 30, because it seems so old because I had never been almost 30 before. And so I just wrote every day, every day. And I wrote my first book.
2: So when you had your first book published, which was Leaving Atlanta, am I right? You went to a writer's conference where I think you felt you were surrounded by all these other people who've been published and were having all these conversations with agents and publishers. And you said, I'm so far behind. I'm fascinated about why you felt that way
1: well I went to this writers conference the bread Loaf writers conference which is like where the up-and-comings go and I had a fellowship but I was off the wait list and my book was in paperback the others they had been accepted during their hardcover year and they were saying oh you know what did you wear to your luncheon to meet the media and I said people are having lunches to meet the media and and what are they wearing? And they were describing what they're wearing and I was thinking, I have never heard of such dresses. And I said, I'm so far behind. I now understood why they were in magazines and things and I wasn't. And I thought, how will I ever catch up? How will I ever catch up? And I just cried my little eyes out. But you know, I spoke to my mentor and I said, I just feel like I'm so far behind. And she said to me, she said, are their books better than yours? And I said, no, not really. And she said, well, then you're not behind. You just have less attention. You're not behind. As long as you're doing the work you're supposed to do, you're not behind. And I took that in my heart and it helped. And then I even talked to another mentor and he said, you don't want a big debut anyway. And I thought, yes, I do. I absolutely want a big <laughs> debut. But now I understand at this point in my career, the the blessing of a slow burn, because now like I won the women's prize, but I know who I am and who I who who I am, what I do and why I do it. So I haven't been knocked off centre by my success.
2: Yeah. And also Ever, of course, is discovering your other books, like Silver Sparrow, which you wrote before An American Marriage, but which is coming out in the UK in hardback now. It's a gorgeous edition you've got there as well. And... I think you've said that your books are not like cartons of milk. They don't go off. Actually, they're there waiting to be discovered. And I've I've had real joy in going through your earlier novels. Every single one, I have thought this is just, you know, you you were always a good writer, but it just took an American marriage for some people to to realise. This writers' conference we were just talking about, was this the same one where Judy Bloom, your kind of childhood favourite writer, actually stepped in to help your career?
1: No, this that was so early. Judy Bloom came into my life around 2009 or so. I went to a writers conference in Florida, and everyone—it was another one where everyone was so successful, and I felt bad because I had, my novels were out of print, and I couldn't find a contract for a Silver Sparrow because um, my numbers weren't good enough. They put my my name and information into a program called BookScan that told them told the publishers how much money they could predict that I would make for them, and it wasn't enough money for them to waste their time. And I was just devastated because I thought my books were good enough, but my numbers were not. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I was supposed to do about this. And then a a woman said, I can help you. And I didn't know who she was, but she put my hand in the hand of a publisher. And it wasn't until the publisher said, well, how do you know Judy? And I said, oh, I don't know Judy, anyone named Judy. And she says, no, Judy Bloom, who just introduced us, And I turned to thank her and she had vanished in a puff of smoke, like a real fairy godmother. But have you met her since? Yeah, it did change your life. I did. So I decided, okay, I have to see her again. What can I do? And this is when I was living in New Jersey. And if you read, Are You There God? It's me, Margaret. Margaret lives in New Jersey. So I wrote a letter saying that Judy Bloom should be given an honorary degree at Rutgers University because it is the State University of New Jersey. She was awarded the degree. And so I just knew I would be invited to the luncheon or the dinner or whatever to meet her. And no invitation came ever. The optimist, I said, well, maybe they don't know my number. Let me call them. So I called the people and they said that, no, that this award had been in the works for years. It had nothing to do with my little letter and that they um, the reception was only for major donors of ten thousand dollars or more. And my car was only worth six thousand dollars at this time. So I said, well, okay, but I kept calling because I believe that life is about getting the right person on the phone. So I kept calling, but I kept getting the same woman. And finally she said, look, you can come to this reception. You can greet Ms. Bloom, say what you have to say and go. Do not eat anything, say what you have to say and go. And I said, that's fine. I'm not starving. I'm not trying to eat. You know, I'm trying to deliver a message. So I got all it up. I drove out there and I told her, I reminded her how she took my hand and she was so gracious. And then she said, well, what what table are you seated at? And I said, oh, no, ma'am, I'm not eating anything. I'm not eating anything. This glass is only water. I'm not eating or drinking anything. I have to leave. And she said, well, that is ridiculous. And she arranged for them to bring a chair and I sat at the head table.
2: Oh, God, this is good. This is such a good story. But I'm so appalled, as well, at how you were treated first. I mean, I admire your gumption, I think is the word, to to go regardless.
1: It was so important to me that I be able to meet her. I didn't care. I didn't have to eat. Like I said, I'm not starving. I didn't need to eat. I I wasn't dying to have, you know, little, tiny, little crudités. I could eat at home.
2: So, Silver Sparrow, your third book, which was published in the States before An American Marriage, but it's coming out in the UK now in hardback. Fascinating. It's the point of view of the two daughters of a bigamist father. There's the daughter of the secret family and the daughter of his legal wife. What drew you to tackle such a subject?
1: I want to start by saying that, to the best of my knowledge, my father is not a bigamist. But I do have an older sister. She's 10 years older than me. And she grew up with her mother. She was born before my parents met, but she grew up with her mother on the other side of the country. So all my life, I felt like I had a sister and I didn't have a sister. As a little girl, all I wanted was a sister and I had one and I didn't know her. And so this book was really written as a love letter to her.
2: Oh, no, it's lovely. But also it struck me, and this is true of all your novels. They have this incredible sense of time and place. So and and also of female coming of age so these two girls are kind of growing up separately it's kind of the early 80s and all that little period detail which because I'm exactly that age I found that really added something it was almost like a time machine as well as a book that's about interesting characters why I just I just fascinated by how you evoke that sense of time and place as well as character and why that's important
1: I tend to write characters who are of my generation so what they remember I remember. And the more time I spend remembering one thing about an era, more details come. It's similar to when you're talking to a friend about something that happened a long time ago. Your friend will say one thing and it'll bring back so many memories which lead to other memories and other memories. So that's how, and then I also feel a sense of mission with talking about the story of my generation. There's a lot of pressure I feel on, particularly writers of color. There's a sense that your work is filling in the gaps of history. Like you tell your grandmother's story because your grandmother couldn't or wouldn't. But then I thought, okay, if, I'm te- if my mother's telling her grandmother's story, I'm telling my grandmother's story, then my granddaughter will tell my story. Who's, I think I can do a better job of telling my story than some young woman in the future. So why not tell the story that I know? I mean, that, that also is important work. The contemporary is important subject matter. And I feel that other writers do it all the time. But I think for writers of colour, there's a sense that your job is to fill in the gaps of history.
2: Now, An American Marriage really struck a chord with international readers of all backgrounds. It's a love triangle, but it's also a book about the way that the incarceration system in the United States just penalises people of colour, men of colour, in particular black men, African-American men. Again, I'm fascinated by what inspired it and crucially the fact that it isn't just a book about incarceration. It is a book about love. It is a love triangle.
1: It is a novel about, you know, people and their problems, not problems and their people. I think all novels, if they're any good, are going to be about about the people. And it's also, a good novel is going to be about moral ambiguity. That's the thing that makes you torn and keeps you turning pages. And if I was merely writing about wrongful incarceration, there is no moral ambiguity there. They call it wrongful incarceration because it's wrong. What else is there to say? But when we started looking at the effects on a marriage and what the character should do, like is it wrong for him to want her to wait? Like is it—is it selfish to ask someone to wait for you? Or is it selfish not to wait for someone? Like these are questions that you can go back and forth and that is what makes the novel, it's what gives the novel heart. I feel like the incarceration piece gives it mind, but the novel has to have heart. And when I'm writing the novel, it took me six years. I needed to be puzzling over a question myself. And the question is, what do we owe one another? How does gender come into play when we look at these issues of race? And what is loyalty and what are the expectations of marriage today? What about children? What, what about the expectations of children for women? What about women as artists? All these questions came to play in this book. And that's why I think it took me so long to finish. I think I, think I was doing a lot.
2: It was worth taking the time over. And you have to tell us, uh, there's an amazing story about the kind of the germ of the book was a conversation you overheard wasn't it?
1: Yes. Well, I was at Harvard doing research for the book and I had learned a lot of statistics and facts and I was outraged, but I wasn't inspired. I didn't have a story. Like I had the problem, but not the people. Well, I was in a mall and I saw a couple and they were in love and in trouble. The woman was fantastically dressed, bags, shoes, nails, everything. And the guy, he looked, he looked fine, but she looked fantastic. This is why I noticed them and I heard her say, "Claire Isabelle, a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I looked at him, I looked at her, they looked at me, and I felt like all three of us were in agreement that he would not have waited on her for no seven years. But then he turned to her and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And he too was right. And then I knew that I had a novel.
2: And of course, those lines of dialogue are in the novel. You know, they're right in the middle of it. But it's amazing how you built this whole story around it. You raised uh, the issue just a bit earlier in the context of this novel um, about how people think about gender and and sort of the expectations of how uh, women should behave. And I have been, I interviewed you at um, a big sold-out event when American Marriage had won the prize. And I remember there being this young... Um, Black woman in the audience who was very unhappy. She said, you know, I don't think the heroine is very nice. And um, I was fascinated that there were people who didn't think she was as likable as she should be. And you had a really good answer, you know, about why women don't always need to be likable. But tell me about that issue because it clearly does get raised, doesn't
1: it? I mean, I've been to book clubs and the people have nearly come to blows over this because there is, well, there's one thing, there's the tyranny of genre expectation, right? When you say, I've written a novel about a woman and her husband has been wrongfully imprisoned, everyone says, oh, this is one woman's brave fight to free her man. That is the story where, this is what we think a woman's contribution to the story is. So that's one thing, readers do get a little turned around when the story doesn't go the way they're expecting. So that's one. Secondly, we do tend to value women for the extent to which they can suffer. That is the way women achieve virtue. I mean, that's as old as the Odyssey, right? Odysseus is like Roy. He's had all these trials and tribulations. He just wants to come home and find a virtuous woman and a clean house. And like Odysseus, he makes some friends on the way, but that's neither here nor there for the for the way that he is regarded. And I often ask people, what what is it that Celestial has done that makes you so angry? And She has done nothing to injure Roy, she has paid, her family has paid for his legal fees. And also, you know, she says to him, I will be here for you, just not as your wife. And it's clear to me that people think that's the extent of her contribution, is to be a wife. And she, and this is, I mean, she does activist artwork, she does a lot of things. But the idea of a man coming home and not finding a chaste woman just seems to be the ultimate affront. And this really I feel like this novel kind of disrupts that expectation.
2: But it also made me think you're also very conscious of being of a generation and I'm the same generation. I think we've had very different choices to those who came before, particularly to our mothers and grandmothers. The importance placed on marriage and motherhood in the past. Your grandmother had 12 children and I know you talked to her about children. What did she say to
1: you? You know, it's funny, as she got older, the way she talked about this changed, but she told me she had only wanted to have a boy and a girl, two children. But she had she gave birth to 12 children and 10 survived. And you know, she never said she regretted her children, I'm sure she did not. But this is one thing I think when it comes to these questions of motherhood, that it's a very difficult conversation to have within the family. Because think about it, if you wanted two children and you had 10 more children than you had planned, How can you talk to those 10 children about that experience without hurting their feelings? So our mothers almost are obligated not to be truthful to us about questions of reproductive freedom because they don't want to hurt our feelings. No one wants their mother to say, when I found out I was having you, I was horrified and it took me a couple years to get used to you. No one wants to hear that. But that is what happens. There have been studies that show that when women have children, they were not planning to have that their bonding can be disrupted but instead the most you're going to get from a woman is to say to their to your own child I mean if you're a decent mother you have to say I was not planning to have a child but now I'm so happy and you're the best thing that ever happened to me what else can you say
2: yeah well it's just listening to you I think it made me remember that my grandmother he was my parents uh were born in India uh, and one of my grandmothers had ten children, eight survived. I never asked her the question you did or asked her how many she might have wanted. But I do think what a massive difference there has been in just two generations in the amount of choice that we have over our bodies and what we might choose to do with our lives.
1: The idea can you we can't really imagine this is something too with young people because it's only been two generations, but I don't think most very young people, and even me, and I'm no spring chicken can get your mind around the idea that there was a time when you could not determine how many children you had. That women were, as a matter of course, pregnant for their entire adult life. We can't even get our head around that. But I think that's one of the most significant changes, you know, of the 20th century. And I will also tell you, the day that I met Judy Bloom at the, when I went to meet Judy Bloom at the reception and she sat me at the table, guess who was sitting on the other side? the man who invented the birth control pill. Oh, really? Yes, I said, sir, let me buy you a drink.
2: <laughs> of
1: course, he was um, he was Catholic and he wanted
2: the Pope to agree to it because that's why they built in the possibility of a kind of period. So it would feel like a natural cycle. A fascinating, and, gosh. And I you... wanted
1: to buy him a drink. So many, he said, I can't because he said there were so many drinks. Everywhere he goes, <laughs> women are like, let me buy you a drink, sir. That is a, that's another great story
2: i have a couple more questions i must ask before we take audience questions and one is you moved back to atlanta having spent i think about 10 years away you lived in new york for a while and i remember interviewing 15, yes. Um, I'm fascinated by what drew you back. And I think it's partly British audiences don't understand if we haven't been the draw of Atlanta. I interviewed Janelle Monet, who gave yeah. up a place at a prestigious um, you know, performing arts academy in New York to go to Atlanta, where she had a friend. And she said that scene, the cultural hub, the artists, the music, she felt it, it was the right place to be. Tell me why Atlanta has been the right place to be.
1: Well one, I was born here. This is my natural habitat. Um I lived in New York for a long time and I've always said New York is for New Yorkers. If you're in, the culture in the South is so different. It's it's the culture is more slowed down. There's more of an expectation of familiarity with people around you. And the the, the, the music, there's such there's such a significant African American population here that there's so much more room for black eccentricity because there's not just one, when, when, when you reach a critical mass in numbers, there's so much diversity within the group. And no one says, oh, black people don't do this or they don't do that, you can do anything you want. I don't think it's a coincidence that OutKast is here from here, Janelle Monet, because there's just room to do you and no one, it's bigger. Even though people associate the South with being very provincial, I think that for Atlanta, particularly for black culture, there's just so much room to do whatever you wanna do. And whatever you're doing in Atlanta, there's another black person doing it. So, as I said about Spelman College, is that it makes you feel like you, you can be exceptional, but you are not an exception.
2: You're into your fifth novel.
1: And I know there was
2: a lot of interest in this, having just won the Women's Prize. According to your website, it's to be called Old Fourth Ward. And of course, it's very much anticipated. Now, that could be a nerve wracking experience for some writers.
1: You know what? Every novel is nerve wracking. When you're writing a novel and no one is anticipating it, it's also nerve wracking because you feel like, what am I doing? Am I just like yelling into the void? So I think that every book is challenging for a different reason. And every book is more challenging than the one before it because you're running out of material, right? So my first novel being about growing up in Atlanta, that was the low hanging fruit. I plucked that low hanging fruit and I ate it. That was my obvious story. But by the time you're writing your fourth and fifth novel, you're writing about things that you either couldn't talk about, didn't want to talk about, or had some resistance to. And so, and if, so if you're doing this right, every novel you should push yourself into new territory. So this novel is about a, a woman who comes back to Atlanta um, after a long time in New York. But it's also about this question of, can you gentrify your own neighborhood? My character moves back into a part of town where she grew up, And it's all different, but she is the person from away that has the money to buy these newly zhuzhed up houses. Can Black people be gentrifiers? If you lived in that exact house 30 years ago, can you gentrify it coming home? And the way gentrification works here in Atlanta, it's very block by block. So this block could be all gussied up, you know, with the houses renovated. And over here are the people she grew up with right around the corner, which means she's running into them.
2: What was your reaction when you heard that Oprah bought the rights to an American
1: marriage? When Oprah called me, I'm sure that there are many pleasures to be an Oprah Winfrey. I'm sure there are pleasures we cannot imagine. But one of the pleasures of being Oprah Winfrey is that she likes to call people in person and change your life. She likes to rock your world. So I'm driving my car, minding my business, and the phone rings, it says unknown caller. I answer it because you know, I'm nosy. Anytime you see a blocked call, somebody blocked it for a reason, (laughs) and I want to know what it is. So I said, hello. And she said, hey, girl, this is Oprah. Pulled over to the side of the road, and it was a not so great neighborhood. So like um, panhandlers are banging on the window asking for money. (laughs) I'm like telling them to go away, and Oprah is just talking. But the most exciting thing or most interesting thing is that she called me five months before publication. So I knew five months that this, but I had signed NDAs. I couldn't say a word but I had time to think about it. And I was really intimidated because Oprah was literally putting her good name, like there's her good name right there on the book. But it made me remember all the other people in my life who've used their good name to help me. Like when I went to go to university, my English teacher, she wrote, she signed a letter on my behalf. That was her good name. I mean, she's not Oprah, but her name meant as much to her as as Oprah does to her. And it just made me remember that I am loved, that those other good names were with me also.
2: So, you know, we were talking about that conversation you overheard between the man and the woman. That was the kind of jump starting point for an American marriage, you know, you wouldn't have waited for me. Where do you start writing at the beginning or several chapters in with the scene like that when you've got that quote? you know, When did you actually write that part of the book?
1: Well, that scene ends up happening about two-thirds of the way through. I don't write. I, well, when I write, I think I'm writing in order, but when it's finished, I very often rearrange things for impact, but so I, I write it when it happens, but I did receive a really good advice from my friend, um, Victor Laval, who told me, he tells me, he said, write the parts that you feel like writing. It all has to be written. So why, why write something you don't want to write when there's something else that you would like to write? And I think of it, I don't know, do you all have this cereal, breakfast cereal called Lucky Charms? We don't have it here, but we've heard about it. It's got marshmallows in it. Yes, that are shaped like pink ones, blue ones, yellow ones, and these crunchy things. And I think that much of the novel are crunchy things that are just moving... The story from here to there but the exciting scenes are the marshmallows and when you're a child you want to dig all the marshmallows out of the cereal and your mother won't let you she tells you you must eat the crunchy things but in a novel you can have you want more marshmallows than crunchy things so every time so whenever there's a good part i think of it as a marshmallow and i'm just like write the marshmallow you can write the crunchies later well tiari
2: jones thank you so much for joining me on how i found my voice We'll This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.